Praise the Lord. Let's take our Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. And what a magnificent uh, uh, preparation for our hearts as we open up uh, the Word of God. Ephesians, chapter 6. And I'm so grateful that God's Word speaks to everyday life. And this passage really speaks to us on our Monday through Friday life. Uh, And you'll see that it has direct application, really, in whatever phase of life you're in as well. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue uh, this series called Sit, Walk, Stand. It says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. Some of you may have a translation that says slaves, and that's literally the word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, Do the same. What you just heard me say to your slaves, I want you to have that same kind of heart and attitude. Masters, do the same thing and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Would you pray with me just for a moment? Father, this is... A passage of scripture as completely and inspired and authoritative as any other passage in the Bible. Don't let us just run past it because it speaks of masters and slaves. There are principles here that are incredibly important for us. Help us learn to live every day with this kind of mindset. We're mindful, Jesus, that you became a servant. You became a servant even of your creation. We thank you for what you've done. May we be obedient. As we look at your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm so glad that you have walked through this series with me, Sit, Walk, Stand, since January. It's really three sub-series. The first was a series on resting in our identity in Christ. Incredible truth about how when you're saved... Positionally, you're seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. You are saved when you're saved. You have eternal life. That's settled. What isn't settled, however, is how you're going to live this earthly life. And then he gives us several chapters. We've done a subset, a sub-series called Walk. And that is how we walk in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We've been looking at the way people filled with the Holy Spirit live their lives. And next Sunday, we're going to begin the final series out of Ephesians called Stand. You're going to want to be a part of that. And I know we're heading into vacation time and all of that, but be sure you follow along as we look at how to stand strong in spiritual warfare. If you ignore spiritual warfare, you're already, you've already lost. And so we want to see how to stand. But let's look at this final area of how to walk as spirit-filled followers of Christ. And it's interesting, there's so many verses devoted to this area. 
You see, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we're following Christ, it changes the way we relate to everything. It changes the way we relate to God. We now have a relationship with God. Through the gospel and through trusting Christ and with the Holy Spirit, we relate different with human beings like you. We relate with other believers. We walk in unity. We walk in love with other believers. We have a different relationship. Prejudices, boundaries, languages, all those things just kind of, they fall to the wayside as we're united in Christ. It changes everything. It changes everything in the home, as we've seen over the last few weeks. It takes two people that are at war, husband and wife, because of the fall of sin and the curse of sin, and it helps them love one another in a supernatural way. So it impacts every relationship. Last Sunday, I talked about the fact that it impacts children with their parents, parents with their children. I hope that went well this week. We have any testimonies. It changes every relationship. And then it comes to this final area, and it gives a lot of verses. And this area represents the majority of your adult time on earth. It represents work your work how many of you have a job raise your hand a paying job raise your hand yeah how many of you have agreed and taken a volunteer job you're a volunteer somewhere raise your hand even at church unpaid all right how many of you are students raise your hand all right here's what I tell my children here's what I tell my children being a student is a job you don't get money, but I am paying a lot of money to keep you clothed and fed, right? Your job as a child, your job at, in college and all of these things, you may have some side jobs, but your primary job is to get some good grades, is to learn. You're in school. So almost everybody in here raised their hand that they have some type of obligation day in and day out, a place of work, a place of study, a place where they have to do a job. Now, you're probably looking at this passage of Scripture, and you're curious, how does this relate to masters and slaves, slaves and masters? I have to say something about that. Let's, let's look at that just for a moment. This could be a whole sermon on New Testament and Old Testament and its relationship to slavery. You and I cannot escape our visual, our understanding of slavery. Our understanding of slavery is what we've seen in America what we've seen on television, what we've seen in the history books. And it is horrendous. It's horrific. Indenturing and going and capturing people, and, and it had a lot. There were racial implications and all of these other things, and there was terrible treatment and all the things you know that has come about in slavery. And there's still that type of slavery occurring on earth now. But Christians rose up in the 18th century, 19th century. Primarily, Christians rose up and did away with that kind of slavery. You need to know William Wilberforce and other strong Christians brought about the abolition, brought about the end of slavery as it was. It was horrendous. But that is not the picture of this type of relationship. Slavery in the Roman Empire, like 90% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And the elite class did no work. And they had slaves. And slaves were, it had nothing to do with race had nothing to do with race. There were no racial implications to slavery. Second of all, most slavery in that day and time wasn't for a lifetime. Many of the slaves ended, it ended at 30. They were able to work as slaves 
and earn money and pay off their slavery. In fact, we know from history that often, most of the time, the slaves were much better off than the people who were wandering the streets as free men trying to find work. There were people who would sell themselves into slavery often in order to have uh, the type, they would enjoy the same lifestyle as their masters. And so they would actually uh, indenture themselves, put themselves into slavery for the security of a job. Now, I'm not saying that that type of slavery was good. I'm not saying, but one of the reasons that it's here is that it is, Paul is making this point. It's not a point against slavery. That's a whole other issue. That's a whole other idea of what he's saying is in this particular relationship that looked, that was somewhere between slavery as we know it and employment as we know it, although some of you think you're slaves at your job. But uh, uh, somewhere in between there is this New Testament idea of slavery, which has... Uh, is not good, but it was more of an economic reality in that day. And, and, and so what we draw from this are principles of how we relate to those we have obligations to, our employers and our employees, our leaders and the authorities that we have over us. Many of us, almost all of us, have some type of relationship like that. So I need to leave that subject and go on to these Principles. Here's the problem, that this is about work. The problem is, is that for most Americans, work is a four-letter word. They don't like work. Uh, work is something that we spend a lot of our life trying to avoid. A lot of people, including a lot of believers, are working to accumulate enough money so they don't have to work anymore. They're trying to buy themselves out of work. And, and that is, that is the, the, the American dream is to be free from having to work. In fact, someone wrote a song one time, I don't know any of the other words, other than everybody's working for the what? Weekend. Anybody heard that song but me? Everybody's working for the weekend. I bet that characterizes a lot of folks, doesn't it? It might even characterize you. Thank goodness that it's Friday. And if you're not just working for the weekend, a lot of people are driven and they're working and working and working. They're not driven for the weekend. They're driven for another W word. They're driven for wealth. They're driven to accumulate. And there's a, a, an undercurrent of greed that drives a lot of work. And, and there are other reasons for work, but I want you to remember those two words. Weekend and wealth. Say it with me. Weekend and wealth. That characterizes, I think, uh, a large majority of why people get up and go to work Monday through Friday. But that is not the picture God gives us in this passage. One writer wrote this. He said, work is universally portrayed as something that gets in the way of all the other things we'd rather be doing. Work calls the shots. It's the factory whistle that awakens us each day from the dream of a life of leisure. Work drags us from our homes and subjects us to traffic jams and shark-infested waters of competition. Work drops us back home in a heap at the end of the day and at the end of a long business trip. Work tells us where we can live, what we can wear, when we can go on vacation, and how much we can spend in between. Wherever our hearts turn in life, work is there dictating the pace and saying yes or no to our heartfelt passions and desires. And so 
a lot of believers, unfortunately, are working for the weekend or just simply working for the wealth, hoping they can buy themselves out eventually from having to work anymore. Look at this passage. It tells us something different. I want to give you two totally different W words that ought to come to your mind when you think about your job. Because look what this scripture says. It says, bondservants, do your job. Obey your earthly masters. Look at that verse 5 again. Obey your earthly masters. That is a present continual tense verb meaning this is the consistent daily activity of someone who has a job they are to do their job but i want you to notice how you are to do your job you are to do your job with fear and trembling what why would i have fear and trembling and 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 basically he says you do your job with great respect for the authority over you why would we do this because our job is not for the weekend it's not for the wealth it's for something else We are to do our job with a sincere heart as you would who? Christ. We're all, I want the verses up there. Look at those verses. As you word Christ, verse 5. Now look at verse 6. Not by the way of eye pleasers, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. What do we call? When, what do we call it when we hear the will of God and we respond to the will of God through obedience? We call that sacrifice and we call that obedience to God, we call it worship. It is worship when you receive revelation from God and you respond to his revelation through obedience. Now, music is worship. There's all sorts of parts of things that are worship. But ultimately, worship is when you hear God say something and you do it. Hear what God says. Do your job. Now, watch. Listen to the way he says to do your job. This is what's what's amazing. There's a different quality to the work of a Christian. There's a different quality. Because, let me show you the quality. When God is your boss, ultimately, your your quality is going to be done in in the right way. And listen to how he describes the right way. First of all, it is as though you were serving Christ. As though you were serving Christ. That's the right way to worship. Number two, it is not by way of eye service. Eye service, if you look in that verse. Some people think that Paul coined that word. Not by way of eye service. Now, y'all know what eye service is. Have you seen it on the job? When the boss shows up, everybody straightens up. Why? It's eye service. Well, you know, it's, it's smart, too. <laughs> it's wise, but we want to be seen as doing our job. But here's what the Apostle Paul says. That is not what God is looking for. He's looking for you to do your job as an act of worship, whether anybody is looking or not. It is not to please your boss that you do your job well. It is to please your 
God. It's a different way. The quality of a Christian worker is different. It's it's as though you're serving Christ. It's not by way of eye service. And look at this next little word. It says also you serve with a good will. A good will in verse 7 it says. That's with enthusiasm. That is from the heart. Good will there, that word means with favor, affection, benevolence, a, a good attitude, willingness. How many bosses want those kind of employees? Most of them do. But whether that boss wants that kind of employee or whether your boss cares about you as an employee or gives you a raise because of how good you are, doesn't matter. Who's the boss at work? God. And your work is an act of worship. Remember last week I pulled out the idea that one of the reasons that our homes are dysfunctional is because we separate what we think of as secular from the sacred and we think this is the house of God and we when we leave we leave the house of God and we go back to our homes but what I said last week is absolutely true your house is just as much a house of God because you are you are on mission in that house you're training disciples in that house and your parenting and your marriage is an act of worship because he's given us revelation he's given us commands on how to love and lead and teach and as we do that we are worshiping god as parents worshiping god in our marriage and now he says this he says that factory that university that hospital that car dealer wherever it is you go to work or that office right behind that wall over there when i sit in that office i am responsible and accountable to my creator and my work whether you're watching me or not is to be an act of worship and it is to bring glory to my father one day i'm going to stand before him Believers don't work for a paycheck. And if you do, guess what? Your joy, your peace, and your happiness is going to go up and down with your paycheck. And if you lose your job, good night. So, the quality of your work changes. You'll be doing the work the right way, and you'll also, secondly, be doing your work for the right reason. Look at verse 8 with me. You're, the right reasons. Knowing, he says, here's what you've got in your mind as a follower of Christ when you go to the class or when you go to the job or when you're doing your volunteer opportunity, you're knowing that whatever good you may do, whether your boss or anybody's looking or not, it doesn't matter. Whatever good you do, this he will receive, that faithful servant will receive back from the accounting department or the tax department. Now, where will you receive what really you want most that you don't even know maybe you should want most? He will receive it back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or free. Then he says, masters, do the same thing. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And he's saying, bosses, 
You need to treat your employees understanding that it is not what they think about you that matters. You are being a boss, you're being a leader, you're being a pastor, whatever it is, you're doing it because you know that you stand equally under the lordship of Christ and you're equally both going to give an answer for whether you did your job well and if you did it as worship for him. So we do our jobs ultimately for different reasons. That's nice to get a paycheck. It's nice to have vacations. All those things are great. That is a blessing from the Lord. And I have discovered that Christian workers who do their job as unto the Lord for the glory of God end up being well paid for the most part. They end up being very successful. By the way, if you're not a believer here, you're just kind of checking out Christianity, you're not a follower of Christ, can I tell you these principles are good for you too. Non-believers that do their job in this kind of way uh, are effective and are normally rewarded, but we're not looking for the earthly rewards. We're looking for the heavenly rewards. Listen to what Colossians 3, verse 23 says. Whatever you do, Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, whatever you do, work how? Heartily from the heart. From the heart. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are receiving, are receiving you are serving the Lord Christ. Can I tell you, this is a hard deal. I think daily you're going to have to remind yourself of this truth. Don't you? I do. Because it's easy for me to just come in here and preach a sermon and do all my kind of stuff and try to be real nice to people and loving to people and be a good pastor. And it's nice, and, and, I, and I get rewarded sometimes. Some of you will come up and say, man, that's a great message. Ooh, reward, team. That felt good. Some of you, I'll uh, say, yeah, I really like that pastor. He's a nice guy. Ooh, that felt good. I'm pleasing men. And if I'm not careful, my happiness and my joy can get off track, can it? It can get off the track of pleasing God and onto the track of pleasing men. And if I can fall into that, so can you. We have to daily remind ourselves, I am here working for God. And I know I got an earthly boss. And the way my God wants me to perform is he says, you see that earthly boss? You see that earthly boss? I want you to serve that earthly boss as if he were me. That's what this passage says. It says, you have no idea. You haven't met my boss. Jesus has. Jesus knows who you work for. Jesus knows what kind of boss you are. He says, you don't, you don't understand what kind of employees. I, if I don't threaten them, they don't do anything. There's, there's, there's a daily reminder here to remember who's the boss. Your work, my work, must be an act of worship. Let me give you a second W word before I let you go. 
Your act, your work is a place of witness. A place of witness. Many of the people in your office, in your class, in your fraternity or sorority, many of the people in your neck of the woods, your neighbors, are not going to come to church. But God has sent you as the church to them. God has sent you as the church to them. They are your stewardship. Is it an accident that you're working with who you're working with? Is that an accident? Is it an accident that you live where you live? Is it an accident that you have the students you have? Or the co-workers you have? I don't believe in accidents like that. God has woven you into the fabric of this community in this world in such a way that you, if you are a follower of Christ, what you're doing there is to be done as an act of worship and you are to be a witness. A witness to the life-changing, life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And you're also to be a verbal witness to the, to the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, depending on where you work, that can be challenging, can it? Some of you have great freedom at your work to share your faith. Some of you have stringent rules. But we cannot let those those things be an excuse. There are, there are far more ways to be a witness than we are often willing to look for. We use it as an excuse. When you, you have limited yourself as a witness, most likely, far more than your company rules. You're a missionary. Just think about this. If I could draw a line from every single person in this room to the people you work with or volunteer with or go to school with, the people that are in your sphere of influence, how many people do you think this 500 folks, however many, four to 500 are in here, how many people do you think this 500 influence? every week let's influence them for Christ let's influence them for Christ do you think the Bible to ask us to do that let's influence them for Christ how do we do that you do it through your testimony your work ethic you do it by the way you behave the language you use you do it in 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 your lifestyle and you go into that work and you think you, I, I ask you to ask two questions walk to work this week with these two questions in mind. Let me give them to you. You can write them down. The first question is, God's given me a command. We've seen it right here. Do your job as unto the Lord. That means how can I do my job as good as I can do it? And how can I do it better? The problem is, is a lot of believers who walk in and go in, what is my job? Those 10 things and check them off. Okay, I did my job. The question is, you go in, how can I do my job well? How can I do it 
as an act of worship to the Lord. Second question, every day, how can I, through my influence as a boss, a mid-level manager, an employee, maybe I just work by myself out there, some, somehow pray, God, how can I use my Monday through Friday existence to influence just other people? How can I influence them one step closer towards Christ? You can do it. Can you imagine if every single Christian in Gainesville took that philosophy tomorrow morning? I visualize that would make an impact. The problem is a lot of Christians will walk into Monday morning going, I can't wait till Friday. <laughs> Just, Lord, get me through this to another weekend. Two more years to retirement, my pension. You were designed and created for work. Work is hard now because of the curse of sin. But the gospel comes in and it helps you overcome the curse in your marriage. It helps you overcome the curse with your children. It has helped you overcome the curse in your relationship with God the Father. And it is here to help you overcome the difficulties of work the difficulties of relationships, the difficulties of all of those things, it gives you the power and the ability to have victory at work. If you'll go in and see it as worship and as witness rather than as weekend and wealth. Does that make sense? You say, well, pastor, you just, you just don't understand. You're in the ministry. If you had a real job, you'd understand. <laughs> I, have, I have seen guys and gals who have, who've come and I've talked with them years back and they've said, you know, if I could just get free of my secular job, I could have more time to do ministry. This passage says your job is your ministry. And I have seen people with incredible avenues of influence to people I could never touch never get to, who would never talk to a preacher. I've seen men and women give up incredible influence, incredible opportunity and access to the community, give that up to go to seminary. Now this may seem a little strange. You'd expect most pastors to say, you need to get out and go to seminary and become a minister. Now some of you need to do that. If you have a call to vocational ministry, but I'm telling you, vocational ministry is not easier right it's a different type of job it's still work but it's work that sometimes if you if you run from your job you're running sometimes from the greatest opportunity God has placed you there don't waste it seek first the kingdom of God and all of those things will be added unto you. Well, let me close with this thought. When I was going to college, speaking of jobs, I was resisting the call to ministry. My father and mother had been in, he had been a pastor and been in denominational work. I'm pointing because they're sitting right over there. And uh, I don't know, I just felt like, you know, I didn't want to do that. I'd seen some of the struggles of that behind the scenes and all that. And 
So I wanted to be, uh, I thought a music major for a period of time and accountant and business. I got a business degree. I was just resisting the call. I'm glad I made the right choice. I really believe God's called me to do this. But when I took some, uh, some music courses, I took composition. And in composition, the first thing they did, they taught you some things, but they gave me a book by Johann Sebastian Bach. And, and these little fugues and preludes are, are uh, instructive on how to be a composer. In fact, it can be argued and is argued by the majority of musicians and academics that the greatest composer who ever lived is Johann Sebastian Bach. I know you thought the Beatles were, but it's probably Bach, you know. He's lasted for 300 years. He's still popular. He influenced other great composers. He was brilliant. He was prolific, but I'm going to tell you why Bach, I believe, is the greatest living composer, why his music and you hear it all the time, you don't know it's Bach, but it's all over the place. It's in every wedding, most weddings, you'll hear his fugues and preludes and chorales and all of these different things that he's written. But here's why even secular academics believe that Bach was so great, is that he saw his life's work as worship. He saw his writing of music as an act of worship. Every one of his songs began as a prayer. In fact, written at a lot of the, the top of a lot of the scores are two initials, J, J. At the beginning, he would put J.J. That stood for a Latin, two Latin terms. The Latin terms that it stood for were Yesu Juva. Yesu Juva. I don't know how to speak Latin, but that's close. Here's what I know it says in English. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. Everything he did began with that prayer. And what you're looking at on the screen is what he wrote at the end of every one of his songs. Sola Deo Gloria. Do you know what that stands for? That, that Latin word means for the glory of God alone. I think what this passage is, is teaching us is to sign sign in the morning every day start every day just sign it in your mind in your heart J J Yesu Jesus help me and then your vision for your job your work wherever you're going whatever you're doing you going to keep the nursery or whatever you volunteer to do your obligation when you go you're going with that prayer behind you. Jesus, help me. Help me today. And then your goal is at the end of that day, the end of that work day, the end of this sermon, I want to be able to sign it. Sola Deo Gloria. For the glory of God, I went to work today.
I built that house today. I fixed that plumbing today. I bypassed those arteries today for the glory of God alone. Let's pray together. Maybe with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, could you make that commitment to the Lord today? To begin tomorrow morning, JJ, help me at school today to do my work, to talk to my teachers and my classmates, to do everything for the glory of God alone. He's my boss. He wants me to honor the authorities in my life because that glorifies him. He wants me to do the best job I possibly can, no matter how much they pay me or whether they're watching me, because this is not for earthly masters. What I'm doing is for a heavenly master. It is for the God alone in his glory. say, Pastor, why are you preaching that so passionately? Why do you care how I do my job? Can I say it kind of selfishly? I have to preach passionately because God's called me to do it. I have to preach the word as best as this weak person can do it because I'm preaching not for you. I'm preaching for the glory of God. He's my master. He said, preach the word, Chauncey, in season and out of season. Preach the word. You're going to stand before me one day to receive your award. So do your work tomorrow as if you're a pastor preaching a sermon for the glory of God and as a witness to the world of what his gospel can do in the life of a normal human being. You be that witness. Sign tomorrow morning. Tuesday morning, sign up, JJ, Jesus. And at the end of the day, make it your goal at the end of every day to sign off the way Bach did. This day, for the glory of God alone. Some of you here need to respond in that kind of commitment. Some of you are doing that in ways we, we don't even know. I, I, in fact, I just told one of our church members as I was walking in, I said, I'm thinking of you kind of today because I've watched you work. I've seen the way you work on your job site. And it just impresses me. Some of you need to respond in that area. And some of you have never given your heart and life to Christ. Jesus wants to take your life and build the kingdom through it. Would you give your heart and your life to Christ? Trust him as your Lord and Savior today. If you'll come down the aisle here during the singing, we have, you can come to me. If you come down here, a counselor will meet you. And that counselor will talk to you about whatever's on your heart. If you want to pray about you're just really struggling. You don't know how you can go back to that job site tomorrow. You just hate it. 
let one of our counselors just pray with you and encourage you. If you need to come join our fellowship, this is a time to do that. If not, I just encourage that every single person in here, man, woman, child, whatever age, that all of us can say, to God be the glory in and through my daily life.